when we get married, we have a ceremony at a church or synagogue or mosque or something, and we make sacred vows. We should have a marriage ceremony for evocation. Uh, and so are you like self-consciously saying, okay, this is gonna be something I'm really gonna pour my love into. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, finding meaning in our work. Newspaper columnist David Brooks and social scientist Arthur Brooks, no relation, share how to incorporate meaning into that eight-hour shift or long night at the office, and why being married to your job isn't a bad thing. Their conversation ahead. This is Aspen Ideas To Go, the podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. David Brooks and Arthur Brooks call their careers odd jobs. David Brooks has written more than a thousand columns for the New York Times, and Arthur Brooks runs the think tank American Enterprise Institute. They didn't jump into these careers right away. In fact, Arthur Brooks tried many jobs, starting as a musician. He even dropped out of college to join an orchestra in Barcelona, but then changed gears completely and quit. And I became an economist, and it was almost there. And finally, this is really the greatest thing in my life right now. Um, Finally, as the president of the American Enterprise Institute, every day I feel like I'm working to serve others. The men discuss why attitude and a spirit of service can make or break a job, and why seeking money, power, pleasure, or fame won't bring meaning to a job. David Brooks begins lightheartedly with his favorite story about his friend, Arthur Brooks. Uh, Arthur was a musician early in life. He was, played the French horn, and he was playing in a quartet in Lyon. Quintet in Quintet. Dijon. In Dijon. <laughs> it's, it's close. It's very yeah. close. It's very close. Uh, and there was, he was playing, and there was a beautiful uh, young lady sitting in the front row. And uh, he noticed her looking at him, and he was looking at her. Uh, and he went down after and talked to her. And uh, they didn't speak a common language. That's correct. He spoke English. He spoke Catalan and Spanish. She's from Barcelona. Uh, and so he... Uh, Went home, I, you must have had some communication, but the, up, the upshot was he quit his job in, in America and got a job in the Barcelona Symphony to, in order to teach himself Spanish and Catalan so he could court this woman. It was uh -huh. a show of commitment. And she shot me down, and that was the end of the story. <laughs> no, no, no. They, have, <laughs> they have married with uh, happy, happy children. Uh, and I told that story once before, a couple times before, and Esther, the uh -huh. beautiful wife, told me a story. You know, you got Arthur's version of the story. <laughs> <laughs> you actually didn't get the part where I sold my trumpet, trumpet in order to fly to America to visit him. It's true. It's true. It's, so. uh, well, thank you. Thank you for that, David. And I'll tell David's background with, with a little less of, you know, <laughs> that, of that stuff. The, it's, it's, uh, by the way, it's interesting. David and I have never done just a conversation like this before. We've been friends for a long time. And, uh, and it occurs to me that it's interesting that at the Aspen Ideas Festival, um, you're going to have a conversation between two uh, moderately right-wing white guys in their 50s and they have the same name. I mean, it's like, you could at least move down the Rolodex a little bit into, into, into different naming, but we're, we're honored to be here. David, as you know, as he told you, is a, a columnist, a celebrated columnist in the, in the New York Times, and for 13 years. And that means you've written about 1,300 columns for the New York Times, which is just amazing, actually. That's more amazing than marrying a blind date from Spain. <laughs> 
I tell college students it's like having a paper due in three days and have that be the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> so, so David and I are, are really good friends, and we do pretty different things. I write for the New York Times once a month, which is you know, pretty avocational, but I run a think tank in my day job, the American Enterprise Institute, which some of you know. It's a think tank that's been around since 1938 in Washington, D.C. And one of the things that we talk about is our weird jobs when we get together. Because we both have a very odd way of making a living. And it occurred to us that it might be worth having this conversation in public once or twice, because vocation, which is something we feel really strongly about, is something that we've, is a topic that we've shared so often. So that's what today's topic is. It's work as a vocation, how to find meaning in what you do all day. Um, and, and I think an appropriate place for us to start is to talk a little bit about these weird jobs that we have. I started by saying you have 1,300 New York Times columns under your belt. Um, how do you find meaning in your work? So uh, I'm sort of the worst person to talk about vocation because I found mine at age seven. Uh, I read a book called Paddington the Bear, uh, and I decided I wanted to be a writer at that moment. Uh, and there probably hasn't been, in all the days since then, there probably hasn't been a hundred where I haven't written or prepared for writing something. Uh, and so I've been writing it. My joke is, I, in high school, I wanted to date this woman named Bernice, and she didn't want to date me. Um, she dated some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so those were my values. Those were my values. Um, and uh, so I knew I wanted, the only question was what kind of writer I was going to be. And the other quick story I'll tell is, so I was writing for the school paper in um, Chicago, and uh, William F. Buckley came to campus, and I, um, I wrote a parody for him, about him for being a name-dropping blowhard, <laughs> just for being a jerk. Uh, he formed two magazines at Yale, one called the National Buckley and one called the Buckley Review, which he merged to form the Buckley Buckley. Uh, <laughs> and so he came to campus and he said, David Brooks, if you're in the audience, I want to give you a job. And so that was my big break, and that sort of directed me, and he was my mentor for 18 months. And so then you're just sort of floating around saying yes to everything. And I was writing and really loving being a writer for magazines, which is sort of I really love. And I was writing for The Atlantic and The Weekly Standard and others and Newsweek. And I got a job call from the pu publisher of The New York Times. And he said, um, would you come to New York? I'd like to have lunch. And I had a feeling he might call to ask me this. And my best length is 3,000 words. I hate writing 800 words. And so I said, I walked in there and I said, I'm going to say no, I'm going to say no. And when he asked me, would you like to be a columnist for the New York Times, instead of quickly saying no, I said, has anybody ever said no to that question? <laughs> uh, and he said, no, no one has. And I had a failure of courage. Uh, and I said, yes. <laughs> uh, and, but uh, I found that the only way, and it's perpetually unsatisfying, A, because you always have to think of the next thing. I used to have all sorts of needs for you know, food, water, sex. Now I just have needs for column ideas. That's all I need. Uh, and so it's always that stressful, and each column is a failure because you're churning them out so fast. Uh, but I found that I can get some meaning from it if I can attach it to some ideal. And so with my column, I try to serve four ideals. One, to uh, be a, sort of a model of how we should behave in political life, try to be respectful. Two to advance a, what I call a Whig political ideology, which is sort of Teddy Roosevelt, Alexander Hamilton political ideology, of which there are four in the world. 
Uh, Two three, on this stage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> three, to push the public conversation a little away from politics and a little more toward moral and spiritual direction. And four, just to write well, just to do the craft well. And then the final thing, the meaning in jobs comes from moments. And the way I write is, I've, as Arthur knows, I have a terrifically bad memory. And so I write everything down on paper. And then for each column, I get about 200 pages of research. And I write all over that. And then what I do in the morning is I get on my living room floor and I take all the pages and I arrange them in piles on the floor. And each pile is a paragraph in my column. So it's only 800 words, but it's 14 piles or so. And the process of writing is not the process of typing in the keyboard, it's the process of crawling around on my carpet, organizing my pile. And there are moments when uh, ideas are flowing and I'm making connections and the structure is falling into place, when I'm crawling around moving the papers around the piles that are just the best moments of my job. <laughs> and it's like a form of prayer almost. It's just you know, things are just happening. And so those are the best and most meaningful moments for me. <laughs> you? Well, you, when you were seven, you read Paddington Bear. And about the same time, I was figuring out that I just wanted to be a musician. All I wanted to do was play music. And, uh, and I started the French horn when I was actually eight years old, and it, was, it completely captured me. And so I decided I was going to grow up and be a professional French horn player. It's a great country, you know, we're a little, a little, it's the nerdiest thing ever when you think about it. When I grow up, I want to be, I mean, it would be weirder if I said I want to be the president of a right-wing think tank, I suppose. <laughs> but, <clears throat> um, but and, I, and I spent all of my time in, in my elementary school years and all the way through high school dreaming about it. I mean, I used to go to hear the, I grew up in Seattle, Washington. I would go to the Seattle Symphony, and I would put the mouthpiece to my instrument in my pocket because I would dream that, that you know, the, 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 the principal horn player would take ill, and they would say, is there a French horn player in the house? <laughs> and... Uh, I went half-heartedly to college, because that's what people did. My dad was a college professor, my grandfather was a college professor, and uh, after a year, I dropped out, or, you know, dropped out, kicked out, splitting hairs. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and, and I went on the road playing chamber music, and I played chamber music with these guys in a brass quintet for, for six years, and driving around, I've seen literally every state. And, and most of them, the continental states, in a, in a, from the back of a van. I mean, I drove one time from Baltimore to San Francisco without stopping, 52 hours, only stopping for gas and burgers. And, and it was great, because I was choosing the repertoire, and I, was, I felt like I was, I was doing something meaningful. And then I, I met this girl and fell in love. And, and to make a proper commitment, it's true, David said, I was all in and moved to Barcelona so that she would marry me. And, and I found out when I was there that I was interested in a lot more things. And here's basically, I had this epiphany, I had this spiritual epiphany. I was reading a biography of my favorite composer. And, and it's, if you like classical music at all, you know this composer, Johann Sebastian Bach. And, and um, you know him. And, and you know him. I mean, it's like, you, you, have all, you, you have all those records, as we used to say. And, and you know, <laughs> Mrs. Bach is making a killing in the royal <laughs> And uh, Bach was, uh, he was a great composer, he was a prolific composer. He'd, he'd published in, in his 65 years of life a thousand pieces of music, and he had had 20 kids, which is prolific. <laughs> and, uh, and Bach, near the end of his life, was not famous yet. He became famous 100 years after he died. But near the end of his life, there's a minor biographer that was asking Bach, why do you write music? And it was it was preserved for posterity, and so I was keenly interested in it. Why do you write music? Not, what do you do? Which in Washington, D.C. is all anybody asks you. What do you do? Because you're doing something that's powerful and famous, if you're lucky. 
And, and, but why do, you, why do you, and somebody asked you that, by the way. Think about it. I mean, this is a to, this, our topic is vocation today. If somebody said, why do you do what you do, what would you say immediately? Here's Bach's answer, and it moved me. Bach said, the aim and final end of all music is nothing less than the glorification of God and the enjoyment of man. And I asked myself, if somebody said, Brooks, why are you a French horn player in the Barcelona Orchestra, would I say, the glorification of God and the enjoyment of man? No. So I quit. I quit. I mean, it took me a few years to do it. I went to correspondence school. I graduated from correspondence school with a degree in economics when I was 30. And I was looking for a way to, to be able to answer that question in the affirmative, glorify God and serve my fellow men and women. And I became an economist, and it was almost there. And finally, David, this is, I mean, this is, uh, this is really the greatest thing in my life right now. Um, finally, as the president of the American Enterprise Institute, some of you, this is going to blow your minds because you know where this this free market think tank that does wonky public policy, you know, better life through policy design or something. Um, <laughs> now I can answer that question in the affirmative because every day I feel like I'm working to serve others, people at the periphery of society, people who don't have opportunities like we do. I can be a warrior for human dignity. I can be a warrior for human potential. So finally, I can answer box question right. That's the meaning in my work. This is Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. New York Times opinion writer David Brooks and social scientist Arthur Brooks are discussing finding meaning in your work. Their talk was featured at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Arthur Brooks turns to David Brooks, no relation, and asks how he inserts service into his work as a columnist and how service can be part of any job. You're thinking a lot about how you can edify others. And this is really crazy in the world of professional columnists and punditry. I mean, a lot of punditry is tearing people down. You can get a big following by being evil today. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a thing. And so, but you're going the other direction. You're countercultural. You're subversive by actually trying to edify people. You're a secret agent for good. So, so, but, so here's the question. I mean, I bet when you started writing, you didn't think, I'm going to be able to serve everybody in some little way with every column that I write. Um, do you think that any job can be a service job? I mean, we're, 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 you know, it's funny. I mean, the, the, well, I'll hear leaders say, you know, don't go into business, go into government or nonprofits, as if we should all join the Peace Corps, become a nurse. But I, I'm kind of interested to hear your opinion about how each of us can, can live a service profession. Yeah. Well, I, first, I think I find, if I go to Wall Street, I find a lot of assholes and a lot of wonderful people. And if I go to the world of the NGOs serving in rural poverty in Africa, I find a lot of assholes and a lot of wonderful people. So it's not obvious that one is better than the other to me. Uh, but to me, a lot of it is the attitude. Uh, there's a study done of, of hospital maintenance workers, and some of them define their job as cleaning the floor, some creating a safe environment for the patients. And if your attitude is about that service, you just have a happier job and a more meaningful job. So part of it is attitude. I also have a quote from a guy named Leo DeCoster, Lester DeCoster. Uh, Work is the form in which we make ourselves useful to others. There may be no better way to love your neighbor, whether you are writing parking tickets or software or books, than to simply do your work, but only skillful, competent work will do. And that emphasis on skillful, competent work, I think gets us to the two pickles. One, of course you want to serve others with your work. But sometimes serving others and thinking, oh, how can I serve others, is not the best way to do that. Dorothy Sayers has a famous essay in which she says, 
Don't try to serve the community. If you try to serve your community, you'll do disservice to your work because you'll be angling for applause. You'll think the community owes you something. So she says, what you should do is serve the work. If you serve the work and try to do your job well, you'll end up serving the community even more. And so that's one element I wanted to bring up. And the second, I do think it's, um, it's important to always um, connect it to an ideal and have that ideal in your mind, some image of perfection. Uh, Henry James uh, wrote a, or William James, excuse me, his brother, wrote a great essay about Chautauqua. I don't know how many of you have been to Chautauqua. It's, a, it's like Aspen, but further east. Uh, <laughs> I think we're both speaking there next week. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, and so he said, life is too easy here. Why am I bothered by this? It's too easy. And he said, the only thing we really admire is effort. Serious, strenuous, arduous effort on behalf of some ideal. And one of my favorite James sentences is, the solid meaning of life is always the same eternal thing, the marriage, namely, of some unhabitual ideal with some fidelity, courage, or endurance with some man or woman's pains. And so that effort of struggle on behalf of some ideal that you have clear in your mind, I think mm. is, it, you can have any job if you have that, you have a vocation. Hmm. You know, there's a, a very interesting study that I saw recently about lawyers, and some of you are lawyers, and, and I'm sorry for that. <laughs> and, uh, but it, it showed there's almost a, almost a monotonic relationship between the happiness of lawyers and how much money they make. It's a reverse monotonic relationship. It's very interesting. Now, I know a lot of happy, wealthy lawyers, to be sure. But what you find is that in, in this one particular study, and I, I don't know the validity of this, but it, it suggested that, that the lawyers that choose professions that pay less in which they, they can practice law, they're, they're, they're happier about their lives. They feel more fulfilled in their professions. Now, I don't think that that's inevitable based on what David just said. I mean, David, I think your, your point was you need to be all in no matter what you're doing. And there's a, a, a wonderful saint, uh, Saint Jose Maria Escrivá, a Catholic saint, who, who talks about the, the sanctification of ordinary work. And you say, what's the secret to the sanctification of ordinary work? And the answer is to be all in, is to bring your whole self, to, to, to dedicate yourself to being actually excellent and what you're doing. And of course, we could come up with, you know, if you're an executioner, should you be you know, really excellent in that? And, and, and obviously, there are, there are cases in which that's problematic. But I got to thinking recently, staying in the, sort of the, the saintly mode a little bit, which I'm not, but, um, you know, reading the lives of the saints, one of the things that you see is from probably the most famous saint ever, St. Thomas Aquinas, who in the 13th century, when he wrote his famous tome, the Summa, uh, Summa Theologica, a third of that book is about happiness, and, and he gives a formula for the happiest life in there. And, you know, it's funny, I've, I've, I've spent a good deal of my career, when I was teaching at Syracuse, I was doing systematic economic database studies on happiness, and it turns out that everything I found, Aquinas had found, uh, you know, in the, in the 13th century, which is sort of depressing. And, but Aquinas says that the, the, the unhappiest people in their lives and in their work are chasing four things. Here's the four things. Money, power, pleasure, fame. If you're chasing, look, we all want those things. We all want those things. And there's, there are a lot of, there's evolutionary biology that asks why do people want money, power, pleasure, and fame? And it's almost certainly that it's easier to pass on your genetic material if you have a lot of money and power and, and you're searching for pleasure and you're famous. I mean, you have more animal skins than the guy in the next cave or something. But, 
But I think that it's a really interesting thing that what we find in the literature, what we find in the, from Thomas Aquinas, but also from, the, from the, the literature, the social psychology literature, is that Mother Nature doesn't care if you're happy. <laughs> you know, pushing you to pass on your genetic material is not coincident with you leading a happy life and doing it through vocation in your work, which means that the, the, the genetic prerogatives are different than what we should be pursuing. And so I think the diagnostic tool is, why am I doing this thing? Is it for, is it, we all want money, but is it primarily for money? Is it primarily for power? Is it primarily for fame? That's almost diagnostic to help us understand how to lead a suboptimal life and to not have work be a vocation. What's your view on that? Well, I, I, there are two ways to look at work. Um, one of the things I think when people make mistakes, it tends to be because they think of their work as a career rather than a marriage. And there are two different frames to enter, a, a utilitarian mindset, or we might call an emotional and moral mindset. And if you enter your marriage, nobody would enter a marriage with a utilitarian mindset. Does this pass a cost-benefit analysis test? Am I getting more out of it than I'm putting in? You don't enter a marriage that way. And in my view, you shouldn't enter a career that way either. Uh, you should enter a career with the question, uh, who can I serve? What am I pouring my love into? Uh, am I all in? Right. And that, that's what turns a career into a vocation. Uh, and the way you pick that uh, is, I think you gotta trick yourself, because when you're pouring yourself into a vocation, it's a long period of time. It's very hard to choose what to do. And so Nietzsche says what you should do when you're trying to choose a vocation is pick the four happiest moments in your life, see if they line up in any direction. And that way you figure out what you love. It's actually very hard to know what you love. Another thing I think is a good question is what pains are you willing to endure? Every profession involves a certain sort of pain. Which ones are you willing to endure? Med school involves a sort of pain. Boot camp involves a sort of, sort of pain. I'm sure even being a right-wing think tank director involves some kind of pain. There's plenty of pain. <laughs> Another good question I think is um, uh, what would you do if you weren't afraid? I find G fear is a super good GPS director of where you want to go even if there are social obstacles in the way. I have a friend who was in a job interview, and he turned around to the woman who was actually interviewing him for a job, and he said, what will you do if you weren't afraid? And she broke down crying, because she'd quit if she weren't afraid. And I always ask my students at Yale this, and a woman said to me, I'd leave Yale tomorrow if I weren't afraid. And so I think fear is just a super good uh, instigator. But again, we should, like, when we get married, we have a ceremony at a church or synagogue or mosque or something, and we make sacred vows, we should have a marriage ceremony for evocation. Uh, and so are you like self-consciously saying, okay, this is gonna be something I'm really gonna pour my love into. And if, cause if you, and the, the, I think the paradox, if you look at a job as something, I'm gonna get a lot out of it, it'll be useful for me, you'll end up making yourself less happy and less successful than if you regard it in non-cost-benefit terms. So if you think about the same way that when you enter into a marriage, if you say, well, this is, this is a prudent thing to do, that's probably not the beginning of the best marriage. Right. You're listening to a conversation from the Aspen Ideas Festival featuring David Brooks and Arthur Brooks. They both write for the New York Times and Arthur Brooks also runs the American Enterprise Institute. Arthur points out how contemporary their conversation is. If this were 100 years ago, uh, your dad would have gotten you a job at the post office, and I would have been a farmer or something, because that's what I had. Those are the resources that I had available. So it's almost a, 
it almost makes me feel as if we're entitled and spoiled that we could have a conversation about being happy at work. I mean, who's happy at work? How many of you, and these are, this is the social science question that we always ask about work and happiness. So think about this for a second. There are usually four categories for being happy at work. I love my job, and this is, if you're retired, think about your, the last year of your, of your full-time work life. I love my job, I like my job, I tolerate my job, I hate my job. How many of you would, said, would have said, I love my job? How many of you would have said, I like my job? <laughs> How many of you would have said, I tolerate my job? None of you are willing to, none of you are willing to, to admit. How many of you would say, I hate my job in the end? I love and hate at the same time. Yeah, I know. It's a love-hate relationship. It's a, it's a real love-hate relationship. You know, that's weird. You know, most people, it turns out, according to public opinion polling, think that they love their jobs, but other people don't. We have a huge amount of societal stimulus that, you know, from everything from the office to Dilbert, to, show about, to talk about the drudgery of work. And we have a, we have a cottage industry that talks about dead-end jobs and lousy jobs. How many times have we heard about elites talking about other people's lousy dead-end jobs? And how, we heard the vice president of the United States on The View, which I don't watch, and um, <laughs> that, that uh, you know, said it, this, this particular program, uh, government program is great because that way people can quit their dead-end jobs. You know, I've done the research on this, and it turns out that loving your job if it's the, the thing that you're trying to predict, is not predicted by having a college degree and is not predicted by having above or below average income. You're just as likely to love your job if you're making $30,000 a year as if you're making $300,000 a year. You wish you were making more money because everybody does. But it's an interesting thing. I think it's a, it's a problem that we have. It's a classist problem to assume that jobs that pay less, jobs that are less sexy, are less good and people like them less. And this leads to one other thing that I want to ask you about, David. Um, I've been looking, I've been thinking about writing about the topic of fear because I think there's so much fear motivation in people's lives that you were mentioning. And you know, living in Washington, D.C., everybody's terrified, just terrified of professional humiliation. And uh, there are days when I am too, I'm afraid, I'm really motivated by fear. And so I was looking at excellent survey data about the personal fears people have about their future, just to see how many people are afraid of failing professionally. Number one professional future fear is running out of money. Number two is illness. Number three is loneliness. Number four is becoming unemployed, which is related to number one. And where does professional failure fall? It's not on the list. Those of you who felt fear from professional failure you're not like the rest of the population. It's odd. So I started thinking about it. I started asking people about it. And there's a guy, you know, my, my, my pipes were backing up, so a guy was coming to fix it. And, and I asked him, are you afraid of failing in your job? He said, what, you mean like getting laid off and not being able to pay my bills? So I said, that's a different category. Are you afraid of failing? And he literally couldn't understand what I was saying. It didn't make sense to him. I mean, like using the wrong bore of PVC pipe or something, you know, being humiliated, it didn't make sense. And so that's an important thing, I think, that, that those who are worried about professional failure and humiliation are a particular class of people. And that explains a phenomenon that I saw in the data, which is that, that people tend to be really strongly in the same categories of liking their jobs, but one predictor is when your income gets above super rich. You start liking your job less. Do you think that's actually motivated by fear? Uh, hmm. 
I think people start liking their job less uh, because they get older. <laughs> I mean, there's the famous U-shaped curve of happiness, where people in their 20s are, um, are super happy, uh, and then they, it starts declining, and it sort of bottoms out at age 47. Right. That's called having teenage children. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, and then it, it sort of rises up, and the happiest years are the t first 10 years after retirement. Uh, part because you just see the world happier. When older people look at a crowd of faces, their eyes gravitate to the happy faces. When younger people, they, their eyes gravitate to the unhappy faces or the dangerous faces. Uh, and that, there might be evolutionary reasons for that, of protection. Uh, but I also think, I'm, I'm weirdly, um, I'm driven by fear of loneliness, but I'm not driven by fear of failure. I often have fantasies that I'll accidentally plagiarize somebody and my whole career will go up in flames and I'll become a drug treatment counselor in New Mexico. Uh, and it, it's sort of like weirdly purifying. Like, I think actually if I was a teacher, I'd be fine. I would be totally fine. And I'm, like, I'm now like trying to talk myself, I'm continually trying to talk myself into um, courting fear. Uh, and, and I do think, you know, there's a, we go through these phases of life, and most of us are in this room or in a, a middle or later phase. And then early in life, in your 20s, you're sort of lost. You're, you don't know what your commitments are. But then you begin in the late 20s, early 30s, to a, a marriage and a family, and maybe you spend a bunch of years totally concentrated on that, or you're obsessed with job making that, you're totally committed to that, or you throw yourself into a community. But then I think you get to a point in middle age and maybe it's when your kids leave for college or just some of the demands of parenthood are less, when you want to take all the different commitments you've made in your life and you want to funnel them into one thing. And there's a, I think there's a moment, we're all living so much longer, a moment in the 50s and 60s where you decide, okay, I've got all these different things going on in my life, I'm gonna integrate them into one cause. And you're now at a point where you sort of know who you are, you have some identity stability, you have some, hopefully some financial stability, and you have the resources now to take a gigantic big risk. And I sort of feel called upon in, at some points in life like, okay, now that I've got this stability, now is exactly the time when you should take that big risk. And it helps, frankly, to be around college kids as I am because they've got their world wide open. And so even in middle age, I think you can say, I'm gonna be like them. I'm gonna take some big risk and go off in some other direction which will integrate all the different purposes I've tried to serve so far. So I'm going to go become a farmer. I don't know. I don't know. But I feel like courting that fear is, is something that's endemic. Because when you get older, you just have more resources, resources to take risk. Are you ready to take a big risk? I think so. Oh, go ahead. Stay tuned, folks. Stay tuned. <laughs> um, you know, one thing that I've noticed uh, since I've gone into I've been in manage, the management of a pretty decent-sized workforce. I mean, some of you have had workforces of thousands. And we have, but I have several hundred people working at AEI. Uh, many of whom are PhD-level scholars. And one of the things that I've noticed that's really interesting about the cadence of their careers is that there's a difference between those who at the end of their careers are happy and those at the end of their careers that are unhappy. And so I started looking at it. What, how did they pace their own work? And one of the things that I found, I found a sort of an empirical regularity, is that the, those who do the best, who, who end up really quite happy, they spend their 20s and 30s making their big discoveries. That's when their flashes of insight happen. And sometimes they're really technical, and sometimes they're actually pretty sublime. And I've started to look, you know, what you find is that now in Silicon Valley, you find people who do their, you know, their big idea startups. It tends to be in their 20s and 30s. 
In their 40s and 50s, people in, in, in intellectual industries in particular, they tend to do their best expositional work. They do their best writing. They do their best expression with other people, about the, mostly about the ideas that they had in their 20s and 30s. And they don't really have that many new ideas, but they're really good at getting those ideas across. And people in their 60s and 70s, because people work in my world through their 70s, um, it's not just because you know, I pay people poorly. Um, they, but people in their 60s and 70s, they do their best work when they see their work as teaching, when they see their work as actually imparting what they know to the next generation of people. And what they're really doing is, is discharging their batteries and charging up other people. They almost, when you talk to them, they almost talk about them making themselves irrelevant. They're working themselves out of relevance. Now, the unhappiest people are the ones who keep trying to do the 20s and 30s flashes of insights all the way through till they're 79 or 83 years old, and they want to go out with a bang, and they want to stay famous. Remember, Aquinas is for substitutes, for what you really want. One of them is fame. And so the unhappiest people that I ever see, they keep, they keep trying to write the new book that's really a brand new idea, even though they're in a part of their life when they should be passing on the wisdom and their knowledge and happily charging up the next generation of people who should be having their insights. Life is a cadence. And if you structure it right, I'm finding, and it's really advice for me, by the way, if I structure it right, I can work my way out of relevance and into retirement at some point in a way where I'm actually happy. Okay, so I disagree with that. <laughs> so I, I think one of the things, uh, it's useful. One of the best things I ever did was um, uh, with my column is I asked people over 70 to grade their lives. Hmm. Uh, I call them life reports, and they tended to give themselves A minus for their career and B minus for their personal life. Uh, and you learn some obvious things. Uh, everybody out of the 5,000 people who wrote in, only one person regretted a risk they took. Uh, but the happiest people were those who divided their life. Well, the well, absolutely happiest were those who um, uh, had a long, happy marriage. But those who divided their life into time periods. Some people every day just sort of fritters away. But some people say, okay, the next seven years of my life are a chapter. And then the next seven years are a chapter. I had a student who was a 42-year-old colonel in the Army who came back to Yale to just move up the chain. And he said, every time we, my wife and I got put to a new base, we, took, we had a three-day personal retreat, just the two of us. We went to the woods somewhere, and we said, are we happy with the Army? Are we happy with our marriage? Are we happy with the way we're raising our jobs? They took everything down to the base, and they built up again. And so I think uh, as you go through life, it's important to shift ground continually and rediscover that 20s period. I, I do think that. I, and you know, I just think in my column I've written, I forget how many you said, 1,300 columns. If I was still writing now about the subjects I was writing about 13 years ago, you know, it would be horrible. You've got to shift ground. And I would say maybe you're reflecting the uh, lifespan of somebody who's really good at math, hmm. where you do have that early early phase creativity. In other forms like art, uh, you have, there are two different kinds of artists, those who are really good early on, and some who are amazing in their 70s, and are most creative in their 70s. Um, and actually, Sir Kenneth Clark, if anybody remembers the Civilization series that came out a long time ago, uh, he did a great essay on artists in their 70s. And the only one I can remember he featured was Titian. Right. But the, he's, these artists, he said, were most creative late in life, but they tended to be use really thick and savage brushwork, and they were really angry. <laughs> so they might have been unhappy, but they were brilliant. Yeah, uh, so right. I do think you can have different creative peaks. Hmm. There's a, a really interesting new study that I just saw that shows that the average artist 
uh, peaks in terms of his or her career at the 60% mark through his or her life. 60%. So think about that. That's 50, early 50s, late 40s, early 50s. But there's also a long period around those times when you would have the most professional success, meaning though, even though you may have peaked, you're still up there for a long time. And we see in business so that actually people can, can, can carry that on for a really, really long time. I did want to add one other thing yeah. from, from the life reports. It, it's like at 13 you hit puberty and you get horny for everything. So I, I noticed in these essays at 70, people developed a horniness for generativity, for giving back. Mm -hmm. And it, it was like a biological thing. I mean, it almost felt like something biological had happened, and they just wanted to give back the teaching. That's the interesting. And, and, and I've actually done work on uh, whether people are happier or unhappier after retirement. And the answer is both. It turns out it depends. The people who are happier after retirement have been pulled away from work by things they want to do. The people who are unhappier after retirement have been pushed away from work because they simply didn't want to do their job anymore. And so that actually has, a, that has life advice for us. Cultivate the things that will make it impossible for you to keep working. And one of those things, and what really important one of those things is service. Another really important one of those things is, is friendship. And, and we're horrible at friendship, especially men. There's a, I saw this very interesting piece of work on, on loneliness. There's a guy at the University of Chicago named John Cacioppo, a psychologist, who's the world's leading expert on, on loneliness. And one of the things that you find about it is that the loneliest people are 60-year-old men. So you've got to ask yourself, why is that? And the answer is, almost certainly, that they've gotten really bad at friendships. When you think about it, you're working and, and you know, who has friends at work? I mean, every minute you spend hanging out with a friend from work, you're stealing from your family, for a lot of guys. And, and so they get worse and worse. Friendship is a skill that requires cultivation. And a lot of women get better and better. So you find that women tend to have more friends at 60 than they had at 30. And men tend to have dra dramatically fewer. And the saddest statistic I ever saw was asking 60-year-old men, who's your best friend? And 60% of them say, my wife. 30% of their wives give the same response. <laughs> so, so, so make friends and retire. The, the basic idea is retire when you're supposed to retire and retire to community based on friendship and service. That's the sine qua non of retirement excellence. This is why we're friends, even despite Arthur's red shoelaces, which <laughs> I uh, only the people up front could see them. It's Aspen Ideas to go. This conversation from the Aspen Ideas Festival is called Finding Meaning at Work. It features New York Times columnist David Brooks and Arthur Brooks of the American Enterprise Institute. Yeah, what, when you were talking, I reminded of the studies of what happens when a spouse dies. And the women, like, they bloom. <laughs> they do great. They mourn actually. for a little while. They go on forever. They live. Yeah. I told and, my wife that. She goes, huh. <laughs> yeah. And the men are gone. Yeah. They're dead within two years. I mean, it's, it's grim. Uh, and I do think that, well, the capacity for friendship is socially challenged. So they ask people, how many people do you know who you can confide absolutely everything in? And 50 or 60 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago, most people get, said, I have about five or six friends who I can confide absolutely everything in. Now the turn answer is two or three. And the number of people who say zero has doubled in the last just 15 years. So there's just a lot more social isolation. What percentage do people say zero? 
I now can't remember. I think yeah. it's like 20%. But 20, so one in 20. five people have zero friends with whom, in whom they yeah. can confide. Yeah. And I think it's often we just cultivate it less. There's a great, if anyone wants to read about uh, friendship, my favorite essay on the subject was written by Montaigne. And he was friends by a, with a guy whose name I'm about to mispronounce. Somebody will correct me. I, I pronounce it Leboati. And they were writers together, and they were friends together. And Montaigne has this great passage where he said, why did we become friends? Uh, it was not one thing, it was a million things. We had this in common, we had that in common. I would trust him with my life more than I would trust myself. And finally, why were we friends? Because he was he and I was I. And so there was this devotion of unity and trust. But at the same time, they were friends, so they were not... The nice thing, like a marriage is about, is face to face, yeah. it's about each other but a friendship is side by side facing something else. Uh, and uh, when Laboati died tragically after about seven years of their friendship, they didn't have a long chance to be friends. And Montaigne is describing the deathbed death scene and Laboati is saying goodbye to all his friends and family and he's giving little speeches in honor of each one. And Montaigne writes, these were emotional, beautiful speeches, but they were a little long. <laughs> <laughs> and so even in the friendship, there's a little, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, be, before we turn it over to our friends in the audience um, for what's on their minds, I, I want to ask you one, one more question that gets back to your work. And that is, what are you doing in your job, besides crawling around on the carpet, when you are actually the happiest? What's your happiest, and what's your unhappiest moment when you're working? I, I do think... Well, there have been moments of satisfaction when I, okay, when I used to write for The Atlantic, I got to spend a few months on a piece. And when I would reread it months later, there was a sense of satisfaction I'd done my best. And that was really a good sense. I never have that with the column. That doesn't, it's, there are too many, every column is a failure. Uh, I think the second thing is just, you know, the moments of flow when you're lost in time. Uh, third, um, uh, there are moments of speeches. If, when you're, sometimes when you're giving a speech and you feel you can lay out before the audience and they'll hold you up. That's a moment of connection that feels really good. And then you go to your hotel room and it's complete loneliness. You get a complete crash yeah. out of those experiences. There's always the mini bar. The, the, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly the problem. He's your friend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's like $500 to clean one out, by yeah, the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Got to check that expense report for you. <laughs> right. uh, I'm the CEO. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about, um, and then we'll go to the questions, about the sense of calling. That you weren't, uh, you didn't choose this, but you were summoned to do it. One of the, I hope a lot of people in this room have, have read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he was like a psychiatrist. He got thrown into, I think, Auschwitz or concentration camp. And he said, hey, this wasn't what I chose for myself, but this is what, I, what life asked of me. And there's a great, uh, and so the question is, don't ask what's your passion. You don't have a passion. Ask what are your circumstances answering you to do, asking you to do. And there's a famous quote by a, a novelist, Frederick Buechner, uh, your vocation is where your deep happiness meets the world's deepest need. Uh, or deep gladness. Mm -hmm. uh, and so have you ever felt like just summoned as opposed to um, I'm running this thing? Uh, yeah, and meaning is really important and a sense of calling is really important, but it's, it doesn't, I've found that it, I don't find it 
I don't get it when I'm looking for it, which is an interesting thing. Um, I remember thinking, I, was t I taught at Syracuse University for a long time, almost 10 years, and, and I loved the job. I loved being a college professor. It's so fun being a college, I mean, you could, you can kill somebody and not lose your job, but that's not my point. <laughs> the, uh, it was, it's like, I sound like Donald Trump now, I know. Um, <laughs> It is creative and it's interesting and, and the students are, were terrific. I only taught graduate students, it was terrific. And uh, I remember thinking to myself at one point, near the, near, it wound up being near the end of the time when I was at, when I was at Syracuse, um, I want to be a better servant. I want to be a better servant. And, and we, a lot of us think that, but we never really mean it. Hmm. But I actually meant it for the first time and I don't know exactly why. And it, it, it weirdly started to change my circumstances. <laughs> so, I mean, I had zero desire to be in management or run an organization or anything like that, but I said, I, I actually want to be a better servant. And the next week, a bunch of guys, I was living in Onondaga County, New York, and a bunch of guys came to me and asked me if I would run for Congress. And so I took it home to my wife, and she said, as you know, as Catholics, we don't believe in divorce. <laughs> so, <laughs> so <laughs> but immediately, a whole bunch of opportunities came along. And I started to become, and it could be cosmic, it could be the hand of God. But there's, believe it or not, there are people who've studied luck. And it really comes from openness. And what you find is that opportunities are sailing over all of our heads. And it's openness to calling, it's openness, it's consciousness, it's being fully alive. And it's being fully alive to being a better servant that really changed my life. And, and I remember that sometimes, because you know, it's not super fun running an organization all the time. I mean, personnel matters and, matters, and I want to write, but I have to do management, et cetera. Um, but I remember that, and I remember that I wanted to be a better servant, and I actually get to serve, and it's that moment that I remember the calling, and that's the most meaningful thing in my career. Let's go to the floor for comments, questions. We'll go start here. We have a, uh, please, stand up and tell us your name, too, if that would be okay. Actually, we have actually house rules at AEI for Q&A, which is please put your protest statement in the form of a question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then I'm... I know, that's right, she gave the mic back. <laughs> no, thank you, I, I really enjoyed this. Um, one topic, though, that didn't come up or answer to the question, why do I do this, why do I work, is I need the paycheck, I need the money, yeah. and I need to pay the bills. And I think the question, what would I do if I don't have any fear, is a good question and can nudge you in the right direction, but it's also, in a way, a romantic question. Mm -hmm. If your fear is, I can't pay the mortgage or I can't send my kids to college. Yeah. So I was just wondering if you can respond to that, to people who have certain needs, certain demands, certain structural issues in their lives right. that might keep them in a job that isn't their passion, but they're grown-ups and they're being responsible and they're adults. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's a good question, something I think about a lot. Um, and I will, I'll say two things. One, the chance to throw off your job if you have no backup plan and no paycheck. You know, a lot, most, most people do not have that option. Uh, nonetheless, I think it is, and so there's an element of privilege probably in our conversation so far. Uh, and, uh, but I, I will say two things. 
The second, I don't even know what it is, but I, I imagine it'll come to me. Uh, <laughs> He's going to make three points. This is the feng shui of answering uh, questions. You know, it has the... <laughs> so I, I wrote this book on character, and now I'm traveling around mostly to the poorer parts of the country. Uh, and I've been to West Virginia and Pittsburgh, New Mexico, West Texas. Um, and the one thing I find, and he found even globally traveling in Africa, there is no income level at which people are not desperate for meaning. And the churches, synagogues, and mosques of the world are filled with people who need moral purpose in their life. And so they don't always have the option of giving up the home nursing job or the parking lot attendant, but they do have ways of filling that with mostly social meaning, filling those jobs with social meaning. So I, th I, think, I think your point is a very valid one, about if you think of it, risk-taking as chucking it all and going off to Indonesia. Yeah, yeah that's right. And we, you know, we do, at AEI, we, we have a, a big project that we're rolling out that's dedicated to, as a policy and moral priority, thinking about how our economy and our society can, can make people needed. Uh, we talk about service, but the key, the key thing is uh, the happiest people feel like they're needed feel necessary, and that the greatest engine of misery in our society is a sense of social and, and, and economic superfluousness. I mean, look around, folks, <laughs> what's going on politically. There are people who are in a primal scream about feeling not needed. That's really what's going on. And so as an ethical matter, everybody should be needed, even if it's a job that, that I mean, so I go to college and I have particular skills, I'm, I'm less likely to be the manager of a convenience store. We need the managers of convenience stores and we need a society that values people and puts equal moral worth on people and an economy that generates jobs for people that are not made up and are not, and people aren't just dependent. Uh, and, and so I think that's, that should be our priority such that we can at least provide that, which is, as far as I'm concerned, the difference between, between work and vocation. Thank you. Um you know, we, we, we sort of have this, or had, this idea that 65 years old, you retire. But now we're living longer, and, you know, should it be 70? Or, so the question is, why should I retire? If someone really loves what they're doing, and they're contributing, why should, why should someone retire? What are your feelings and thoughts about that? Retirement is an entirely artificial concept in, 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 the, in the, the society today. I mean, barring physical disability to get work done effectively, um, the whole idea that there's a, a retirement age is, is actually preposterous. I mean, ordinarily, retirement ages come about for two reasons. Number one is uh, in, in societies where people typically don't live very long, you want to legally mandate that they're going to have some retirement so they can spend time with their families. The other is in societies that don't value work with meaning very much. And so, you know, it's very interesting that, that four years ago, the French government uh, suggested that people, you know, I don't know, they retire when they're like 29 or something over there. And um, they suggested they should work to 31 or something. And, and college students were striking because they were looking ahead at the, you know, re their own retirement. And, and it just seemed to me so depressing. You know, in, in point of fact, we should build a society, and, and, and we do. The United States has much higher levels of job satisfaction than we see in, in almost all of Europe, particularly in France. Much higher levels of job satisfaction, including people who have low education levels and low income levels, because we have markets where people kind of sort themselves into the things that they like, which could work better and should. Uh, uh, don't get me wrong. But, you know, under those circumstances, you shouldn't retire if you don't want to. You should continue to work, and when you don't need any more money, you should keep working and either give the money away or don't take the pay. 
That's my view. I mean, I'm not, not to give you advice, but that's what I plan to do. I think our social scripts have not caught up with our medical progress. And so life is just a lot longer. Like when Clinton, Sanders, and Trump were the last three candidates, we had like 69, 68, and 74, I think, running for president. Right. It was like the, the, it was like the, the, the recreation committee at Sun City running for president. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> and so that, that elongation has created two different decades that are new. The 20s have been redefined as a period of wandering as kids experiment with this and that, lifestyle and city and everything while their parents go quietly insane. Uh, and, then, um, and then the period of 65 to 75 at least is another period. And the only thing I would say, that, um, there's a kid who was, his last name was Trigg, and he grew, graduated from some fancy school, and he read that um, to, to, so, end, to preserve someone's life from malaria costs $1,500. And so he decided he'd go on Wall Street, work as a bond trader or whatever, and make a ton of money and send it all abroad. And that's how he could contribute to society, by making a lot of money and helping people far away. And I think that's a mistake. I think you turn yourself into an instrument if you do that. And you'll become more like the bond market than the service person in Africa. And so I think it's a better thing to get directly relationally involved with the people you actually want to help. And if you're going to work rather to give your money away, I think it's better to personally get involved uh, right. and, and if you can afford to do that. Yep, that, that's right. So uh, my name is Michael. Uh, thank you both for coming here and speaking. Uh, and I read your columns both uh, every week uh, in the New York Times. Um, my question is, what, what do you think is better for someone in their early 20s uh, to engage in some kind of soul-searching wandering or to like, work assiduously in building one's career? Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I've got a friend named Clayton Christensen, who's now an older gentleman, teaches at Harvard Business School, and he was a Rhodes Scholar, so between the ages of 21 and 23, he spent an hour a night planning out his life. And by age 23, he had a plan, and he carried it out, he's now 70, and it all worked. So, in my experience, he's the only human being in history who could have done that. <laughs> so. You don't have to have a plan. Yeah. Uh, life comes upon you. But the, oh, the only bit of advice uh, which was given to me by a friend of mine, which is that one of the things you could do in your early life, uh, early career, is your jobs are going to suck most of the time. Bad bosses, periods of loneliness, periods of unemployment. So the one thing you can be sure to do is widen your horizon of risk. And that's by doing something completely out of the ordinary. And if you do that, then your horizon of risk will be out here. And once you do that, um, you know, my son's in the Israeli military, and I'm not always calm about it, but he's, when he gets done, he'll be able to say, well, I can handle that. And so when a question comes up, he'll be able to say, well, if that goes wrong, I can handle that. And if you do the narrow horizon of risk it, by age 26, I think you pretty much stay there through life. And so that, that's how I would think. Um, I would mention one, one thing, um, which is that if you can cultivate gratitude, it's a habit that will serve you incredibly well throughout your life. This is one of the, the characteristics of the happiest people, that they're actually grateful. Um, it's, it's actually extraordinary. I mean, I, re I remember there was this, I, I graduated from correspondence school, as I mentioned before, and I, the first time I ever saw the place was in 2013 when I went back, they gave me the, an honorary doctorate of all things. And I was speaking at, at you know, my alma mater at the, the Trenton Ice Rink. 
And all of the fellow graduates of my alma mater, I mean, they were, they were poor. They were over 30. It was a correspondence school. It was a second chance in life. And there was this, it, it had a profound impact on me. I was with my son, who was 13 at the time, who says he didn't want to go to college. So I'm giving him, you know, I have a pretty sketchy background, so I figure I can convince him that anything's possible. And, and when, when these people were all coming across the stage, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, a third of them were active military, most were, were minorities, and, it was, and a lot of them had struggled a lot in life. And what, this one lady, I remember, she, they get to say their name in one thing before they get to their diploma. And she said her name and she stopped, and she said, you know, for this moment, I just want to thank my five children and the son of the living God. And the place was just, you could hear a pin drop, right? Why? Because it was an expression. Forget the, forget the specifics of her religious conviction. This was an expression of pure gratitude in somebody who's lived a hard life. If you can do that, you can do anything. You pick. All right. Uh, my name is Larry Gelman, and I was at your session earlier when Jay, in the first panel, talked about work today that people don't want to have a job and a private life, but they want to have a seamless situation where they are fully themselves at work, they are fully themselves at home, and uh, this notion of, of having time and compartmentalizing it is something out of the past. And I was wondering what the two of you might think about that whole notion. It's wrong. It's completely wrong. The, happy, the, the happiest people, according to all the best studies, have a balanced portfolio between, you need to balance your life portfolio between four things. The transcendental, which is to say the things, the spiritual things bigger than you, your family, your community, which is your service and your friendships, and earning your success through meaningful work that creates value. Faith, family, community, and work. If you have one thing, you have an unbalanced portfolio. Your whole life is in Greek bonds. For, for, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's like, it might work out. <laughs> Don't take the risk. Faith, family, community, and work. Cultivate each one of those things every single day. And when you, and you examine your conscience before you go to sleep, ask, what did I do in each one of those compartments? And if you neglected one, resolve not to neglect it tomorrow. Yeah, I, I disagree to some degree. Well, not with the overall point. But I do find among the young people at my workplace and the students that graduate from where I teach, they want to bring their whole selves to work. And they want to have their best friends at work. And I, on balance, that can make the workplace more tough because when you're doing something competitive, sometimes you just don't want to be messing with your friends. Nonetheless, I think the, the increased intimacy of the work sphere today is a good thing on balance. And I would say the happiest times I've been in my working life were working at a magazine where it was like all my best friends in one place. And so I, do, I like the way young people bring their whole selves to work and see, see it as just an unintegrated part of their friendship circles. So either he's right or he's wrong. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, um, we've run out of time. Uh, we're grateful to you for coming to our session. Arthur Brooks is president of the American Enterprise Institute and contributes opinion pieces to the New York Times. David Brooks is a columnist for the Times and a commentator for PBS, NPR, and NBC. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you like what you've heard, please take a minute and rate us. It helps other people find the podcast. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. 
Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for listening.